Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writers with a local slant. And we really are talking books today. We're focusing on the publishing industry in this show. Our featured guest is John B. Thompson talking about his book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing. We'll also hear from crime writer AJ Campbell talking about her experience of self-publishing. And Kathy Moore, director of the Cambridge Literary Festival, talks about the upcoming Winter Festival and why the book is alive and well. Well, John, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Thank you for inviting me. We will obviously be talking about your book, uh, Book Wars, in uh, this programme. But really, your subject is sociology. So why this book? Why a book about books when you are specialising in sociology? For many years, I worked on aspects of social theory and on the development of the media and the development of media organizations of many kinds. But I became increasingly aware in the course of the 1990s that one media type of organization that was in fact the oldest media organization had been largely neglected by scholars sociologists, and others, apart from historians. And that was the book publishing industry. Sociologists and other academics had been preoccupied with new technologies, with the development of audiovisual media, television, movies, with the development of music, and then with the rise of the internet. And they had really neglected the book publishing industry. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, I began to work systematically on the transformation of the modern book publishing industry from roughly the 1950s to the present. Now, historians had studied the book industry in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, but very few people had studied what happened to the book publishing industry from the middle of the 20th century through to the present. So that became the focus of my research in the early 2000s. And I'm guessing sociologists can look at at book publishing because of the effects that uh, publishing has on the culture and society and how we interact with books. Well, that's one set of questions. My focus was more on the structures of the industry and how the industry itself had changed since the 1950s and 60s. I wanted to understand how the world of the book that we now see today around us came into being. What were the big structural transformations that led to this world of book publishing as we know it today. Now, the funny thing is that for many people who read books, and indeed many people who write books, the world of book publishing is largely opaque, and most people know very, very little about it. It's as if it is shrouded in mystery. And so I set out to try to understand the structures of the industry, how they've changed and how they work. How do books actually get published? How do they get selected? How do they get published? And what happens to them once they are published? This whole set of questions was largely unanswered. And so I tried to analyze the structures of the industry and how they affect and shape the kinds of books that we find in our book world today. 
Well, I think you definitely answered those questions in your book, and we'll talk about that obviously at length. But let's hear your first choice of music now, John. Is music important to you? Yes, music is very important to me, and uh, I'm a child of the of the '60s, and the music of that decade has always had a big impact on me. Bob Dylan has always been among my favorites. His song "The Times They Are a Changing" expressed so well the radical creativity of the '60s and the way that that decade called into question so many things that had been taken for granted. It was a great decade for music as well as other things. Come gather around people wherever you roam. And that was The Times They Are A-Changing by Bob Dylan, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, John Thompson. John is Professor of Sociology at the University of Cambridge and an Emeritus Fellow of Jesus College. In 2001, he was awarded the European Amalfi Prize for Sociology and the Social Sciences for his work on political scandal. His academic interests are, as we've heard, communications, media and publishing. And Book Wars, the digital revolution in publishing, came out last year. It explores the challenges facing the publishing industry with the rise of new technology. The Wall Street Journal called it an expert diagnosis. The Independent described it as magisterial and Publishers Weekly said it was intelligent and insightful. Well, I enjoyed it very much uh, too, John, for what it's worth. It, it is a substantial read. I mean, with footnotes, bibliographies, it comes in at just over 500 pages. Did you realise it was going to be such a, a mammoth task when you started writing this? No, I didn't. It is, in fact, the third volume of a trilogy of books on the transformation of the modern publishing industry. The first came out around 2005. That was on academic publishing. The second came out first in 2010, and that was on the transformation of trade publishing. After I'd finished that second volume, which was called Merchants of Culture, I set out to study an aspect of the transformation of the publishing industry that I had already explored to some extent in the previous two books, and that was the impact of the digital revolution on modern trade publishing in the Anglo-American world. I'd already done a lot of work on it, but I wanted to focus on how the digital revolution was changing the modern book industry. I thought maybe it would take me uh, a couple of years to do the research, and maybe I would finish it in two or three years. I had no idea it would take me as long as it did. The more I worked on it, the more I realized how enormous the topic was, because the book publishing industry has been radically transformed by the digital revolution and in, transformed in so many different ways. And so I had to work on topics that I never thought I would have to immerse myself in. And moreover, the subject matter kept changing as I worked on it because the revolution was happening as I was studying the material. It was like trying to study a revolution in the course of its actual process. I had to focus on new topics as they emerged. A good example of this was the growing importance of audiobooks. Audiobooks have been around for some time, but they really became much more important from about 2012, 2013 on. I had not initially planned to focus on audiobooks, but I realized that I had to immerse myself in the world of audiobooks as well as everything else. So the project just became bigger than I'd originally planned and took me into corners and alleyways that I didn't think I was going to have to go into. And that's why it took longer and got bigger than I originally planned. 
Well, let's unpick the title Book Wars for just a moment. So the book part of that, is it fair to say, and it's a question you keep coming back to in the book, whether e-books have changed our notion of what a book is? It's a big question, I know. Well, it's not just that e-books have changed our idea of what a book is. It's the digital revolution that has changed our idea of what a book is. When we ask ourselves, what is a book? The most natural thing to think of is that objects that's sitting there on your desk or on your shelf, and you think a book, that's obvious. It's an extended text, which is printed on paper, bound together, and has a nice, attractive cover on it. That seems all pretty obvious. But what the digital revolution made us realize when it began to take hold in the publishing industry in the 1990s and early 2000s was that this common sense notion of a book actually fused together two very different things. On the one hand, there was the text or the content. And on the other hand, there was the medium or the form in which that text was embedded. What the digital revolution did was to sever the connection between content and form, between text and the medium in which it is embedded. And now we suddenly realize that a book could be read in other media. The print on paper was only a carrier of the text. It was a medium for the text. And there could be other media and read on a screen. Is it fair to say that the publishing industry was slow to recognize both the threat and the opportunity of ebooks? I don't think they were so slow to recognize it. There was a lot of debate in the publishing industry in the late 1990s and early 2000s about what the impact of the digital revolution on the book industry might be. In that time, the big transformation that was happening in the media industry industries was the digital disruption of the music industry. With the digitization of musical content and the separation of musical content from the medium in which it had traditionally been embedded, such as the vinyl LP, this now musical content could be transmitted in digital files over the internet. So what you saw in the course of the early 2000s was the revenues of the music industries began to collapse. And many people in the book publishing industry were looking over their shoulders at what was happening in the music industry and thinking, that could be our future too. And so they began to digitize their backlist. They began to produce ebooks as a standard output of the production process in the early 2000s. But what happened at that time was that there was not really demand in the marketplace for these ebooks that were being produced by publishers. The reading devices were not very successful. Many people didn't want to use them. That didn't change until the introduction of Amazon's Kindle in 2007. And from that point on, things changed very dramatically. And you say many times in the book the importance of Amazon cannot be underestimated as a game changer. In my view, the single most important consequence of the digital revolution in the book publishing industry is 
the transformation of the retail sector and the rise of Amazon. Amazon now represents the most powerful organization that the book publishing industry has ever known. And as Amazon grew in the course of the early 2000s, they played an increasingly central role in the development of the publishing industry itself. They became the primary retail outlet or channel for publishers. They gained more and more market share. They displaced the centrality of the book retail chains like Barnes and Noble and Borders in the US and Waterstones. And then in November 2007, Amazon launched the Kindle. And that was a game changer. Ebook sales grew uh, at a rapid pace through 2008, 2009, 2010, and so on. Amazon also was going to hear from AJ Campbell in a moment about her experience of self-publishing. And of course, one of the things Amazon did was empower writers to self-publish their work in a more respected way, if you like. The growth in self-publishing has been significant, hasn't it? Absolutely. It's almost a parallel universe to the traditional world of book publishing, something that exists alongside of it, but has its own complex structures and players and and modes of operation. Amazon is a key player in the world of self-publishing. They are not the only player and they were not the first player, but they quickly became the dominant player. The industry of self-publishing dates back to the early part of the 20th century. It was commonly referred to rather pejoratively as vanity publishing because authors had to pay a lot of money to get their books published. But this really changed with the digital revolution and especially changed in the early 2000s with the development of digital books or e-books. Because what happened then was that a number of organizations began to experiment with the idea of creating a platform in which authors could upload their books onto the platform and have them self-published on this platform. The big change here was that whereas in the old model of vanity publishing, authors had to pay the publisher to print the book. In this new model, authors didn't pay anything and the platform paid the author a royalty if and when the books sold and kept a percentage of the sale revenue as its own cut of the income. So this was a radical transformation of the very model of self-publishing, and it created an explosion of self-publishing from the early 2000s on. Now, Amazon, which had by that stage in the around 2008, 2009, had become already a key player in the book publishing industry, saw its potential and launched its own self-publishing services. And these became very successful and indeed dominant. Thank you, John. Well, let's hear how one person has really used Amazon. Let's let's hear from Amanda Campbell, writing as AJ Campbell. She's the author of the Amazon bestsellers, Leave Well Alone and The Phone Call, both psychological thrillers. She's written four novels in total, all self-published, and I asked her why she decided to take that route to publication. In 2019, I went to the Winchester Writers' Festival I'd written my debut novel and I got to present the first three chapters 
to four literary agents before the event and they were all very positive about what they'd seen but one of them was particularly interested as soon as I sat down she said I love it I love everything about it I'd like to see a full manuscript and so I said okay where do I send it and I was over the moon I just thought here we go you know I've got a chance of getting an agent and getting my book published and she said to me that she was moving agencies and she said to look out for her on Twitter and she would announce where she was going and she you know confidentiality she couldn't tell me at the time So I spent the whole summer just making the manuscript the best I could. And in September, she made the announcement and I sent her an email via her submission process. I sent her the the full manuscript and I got a very matter-of-fact email back. It felt like a standard email she'd sent a lot of people, thanks but no thanks. And I was so disappointed. And my friend said to me, send an email, say, say, don't you remember me from Winchester and how much you loved my book and my story idea? So I did. Yeah. And I got a response saying, thanks, but no thanks. And I was really, really gutted. And I thought, oh yeah, here we go. And I'd heard so many stories about people saying how difficult it is to get a book published, that people have been waiting, you know, years to get an agent. And even if you get an agent, it doesn't mean to say you're going to get your book published. You're going to get a publishing deal. And during that time, I'd looked at self-publishing and I put my debut novel somewhere in the cloud. I was fed up with it. I'd had enough. And I started working on my second book. And comes December that year, I had 50,000 words of my second novel written. And I thought, well, you know, I could carry on submitting or I could have a go at self-publishing. And I haven't looked back. And tell me how many books you've self-published now? Four, yeah, four, and I'm just editing my fifth. And you've had immense success, haven't you? Yeah, it's been really good, really good. So the first, the second and the fourth reached the top of the Amazon charts, so I got the bestseller tags for them. Amazon put my debut novel into Amazon Prime Reading. They chose it for Amazon Prime Reading. It got picked up by Good Housekeeping UK as one of their recommended reads, I've also sold the audiobook publishing rights to WF House, so they'll all be available in audiobook. It's been really good. So some people would say, well, self-publishing, and the image of it is changing, but it used to have a bad reputation, bad name, because people, when they thought of self-publishing, thought of something badly written, full of typos, not convincing, because there was no gatekeeper. What would you say to somebody who's, who still thinks like that? I think there are books out there and I think there are authors out there that do still publish when they're maybe not ready. I do treat it very seriously. I know I'm up against the big publishers. I have an editor. I work closely with an editor. I have a structural edit for all my books. I also have a line edit, then have a proofreader. I employ a book cover designer, so all my books have professional cover design. I also have a beta team, so they read the book after it's had its structural edit, before it goes through its line edit. Then I have an ARC team and an advanced reader team that's now around 100 people who will read it after the proofread before I actually publish it. You have to treat it seriously. You have to engage a team to help you. I don't do it all on my own. That's impossible. And financially, you're treating this as a job. Are you earning money from this? 
oh yeah yeah I work full-time I support my family so yeah so my husband was really really ill during lockdown I was running his business and trying to write and self-publish and we made the decision what do we do well I couldn't do both do we shut down his business and I carry on with the self-publishing or do I stop writing and publishing and, and we concentrate on his business and I think you know lockdown and the whole of COVID just taught us that we have to do what makes us happy. So uh, I became a full-time author. What are the other advantages? We'll talk about the disadvantages in a moment, but in terms of advantages, what are the advantages for you of publishing via this route? The best thing for me is the flexibility. So I can just drop everything when my family needs me. In addition to to writing full-time, I'm also a full-time carer for one of my sons who has severe disabilities so whenever I I need a morning off for appointments for him or or he's home for the holidays and I have to look after him I can drop everything and I'm just there for him so for me the flexibility is just fantastic and I'm not answerable to anyone other than myself which sometimes is a disadvantage because I do set myself quite tight deadlines sometimes. That's just probably how I work best. And what are the disadvantages? I mean, I do have my editor to bounce ideas off and my ARC team, my beta reader team. But at the end of the day, every decision, the buck lies with me. And sometimes that's really, really tough and very stressful. And I don't know if I'm making the right decision all the time. And when I started all this, I knew nothing about publishing. I hope I'm getting better as um, as I move through the process. And also, you know, there's no way that, you know, I can have the exposure that I would have if I was with one of the big publishers. But that takes time and I'm working at it. Yeah, because you've had to explore whole areas that you know, like marketing and publicity yeah. that, you know, presumably you, you didn't have a background in. No, no. So even coming on your radio shows and going on podcasts, approaching magazines and newspapers. I've done it all myself. I'll get there. <laughs> well, yes, you get there. Would you, if a traditional publisher approached you, would you say yes? I would consider it. There are definitely advantages to having a publisher behind you because it takes so much time. As much as I spend on writing, I spend marketing. So if I had a publisher doing that for me, I could spend more time writing. But that's what makes it all the more remarkable, your success in that without that machinery behind you, you've still managed to build up brand loyalty amongst your readers. Yeah, I mean, I took a a course in self-publishing and one of the things that was kind of drummed into us was you have to find your reader group, you have to find um, your ideal readers and market to them, which is what I've done from my Facebook page and from Instagram. I'm not on Twitter so much. I haven't found that platform as successful. Facebook and Instagram, I I feel are where my readers are. And your genre is crime and thrillers. Do you think that's made it easier? There's probably a bigger market for that genre. I don't know if that's made it easier. I don't know. And you can find all AJ Campbell's novels on Amazon and find out more about her on her website, ajcampbellauthor.com. We're talking on Bookmark today to John Thompson about his book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing. We're just listening uh, there, John, to Amanda talking. She's got a 
a whole career on this, that she's supporting her family doing this. I mean, she's, she's approaching it very professionally. But it's quite remarkable, isn't it? As you, you said earlier, it's something that wouldn't have been possible probably 20, 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the enormous consequences of the digital revolution, that it has created so many different pathways into publication that never existed in the past. In previous decades, an author who wanted to publish a book really had to go through the gatekeepers of the traditional book publishing industry, the gatekeepers being the publishers themselves and increasingly the agents. And many authors, of course, failed to get past those gatekeepers. They became frustrated authors. That is, they thought they had a good book in them, but they couldn't persuade the gatekeepers to let them have a go. And so they just gave up. But what happened with the digital revolution is that lots of new pathways began to open up, self-publishing being one of them, but also the ability to publish text on a blog, on a website, or on a uh, various kinds of platforms for story writing and so on. Lots of spaces in which authors could now make their work available to others in this new, varied public space of the internet. And the old stigma associated with vanity publishing began to fall away. So for those authors who chose to self-publish, they could see this as a positive choice, not as something that they had to do simply because they failed to find a traditional publisher who would take their work. They could now decide that actually this really suits them and gave them more control over their own work and how they published it. And therefore, they actively embraced the label of being a self-published author. They call themselves indie authors, which kind of resonates with the idea of independence and choosing to publish your work in a way that suits you. And there are many authors who have been able to build a career outside of the structures of the traditional book publishing industry. And we've been talking about ebooks. And I mean, I remember having lots of conversations 10, 15 years ago with people about ebooks, with the notion that ebooks would take over, the physical book would be dead, that nobody would want to be holding a paper book in their hands. It would all be digital from now on. And that hasn't happened, has it? It hasn't happened. It was one of the great illusions of the digital revolution. If you go back to the early 2000s, and I began this research in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and I interviewed many people in the publishing industry. And as I said earlier, they were all looking over their shoulders at what was happening in the music industry and thinking that this was going to happen in the book publishing industry too. It was only a matter of time before the traditional printed book would be displaced by ebooks. And indeed, when the Kindle was launched in November 2007 and ebooks began to surge in 2008, 2009, 2010, and so on, it did look like this was the publishing industry's iPod moment. But they were suddenly shocked in 2012 when something equally surprising happened, which is that this rapid growth of ebooks. It just stopped. It stopped in 2012. And then from 2012 on, it actually began to level off and decline. And surprisingly, print books began to bounce back. So why did ebooks not 
continue to grow in the way that digital downloads in the music industry have done. Three reasons are particularly important. First, it's about the reading experience itself. Many people just prefer to read long form texts on the printed page rather than on a screen. It's easier on the eyes. It's easier to move back and forth in the text and so on. In other words, the printed book is just a better reading device than the ebook reader like the Kindle. I think second, many people value printed books as physical objects. They're beautiful objects if they're well crafted. And there's a pleasure that comes from the experience of holding a book and turning the pages. It's a pleasure that's both aesthetic, if it's a well-crafted book, and tactile. And third, I think, is that books have what I call a possession value. People want to own them. They want to have their own copy. They want to put it on a bookshelf. They want to put it on a table and display it, in part because they genuinely value the book as a physical object, but also because the books that they have chosen to purchase and to read are books that resonate with their own values. And therefore, the book becomes a kind of signifier of who they are and what they value. So for a variety of different reasons, the print-on-paper book has a kind of place in our lives and a durability as a cultural object that was not easily displaced by a digital file. Uh, well, I certainly love my books very much as well. Uh, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. Why this one? Well, I've always loved rock music. So I've chosen a song by one of the greatest rock guitarists of all time, Eric Clapton's Layla. That opening guitar sequence is something that I always remember first hearing, and it will always stay with me. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And our guest on Bookmark today is John Thompson talking about his book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing. John, I think the book went to press pre-COVID. Has COVID changed any of the conclusions that you drew in the book? Do you think it has changed the course of ebooks or the publishing industry at all? Not really. I don't think it's changed it. It has accentuated certain developments. It has actually produced some surprising consequences. When COVID really took hold in March 2020, the initial impact of COVID on the book publishing industry was pretty disastrous. Bookstores were closed. 
Amazon was prioritizing medical supplies and other essential goods. And most publishers experienced a dramatic collapse of revenue. However, rather surprisingly, sales rebounded very quickly in the course of 2020. Soon as the first lockdown came to an end, many publishers experienced a surge in book sales in 2020 and 2021. I think what happened is that many other sectors of entertainment, like cinemas and theaters and so on, remained closed or people were less inclined to go out. And therefore, people rediscovered the pleasure of reading books. And surprisingly, perhaps, it wasn't just a surge in ebooks. You might have expected that. Print really rebounded so much so that publishers were finding it difficult to find enough printers to print the books they needed to print. However, it did benefit Amazon with bookstores being closed or stores restricted in terms of what they could do. However, I think what we've also seen is that in 2022, many publishers are experiencing a downturn in sales. Perhaps this is a certain readjustment of the market, maybe it overexpanded, but it's also perhaps a result of the uncertainty that many people now feel at a time of high inflation and a cost of living crisis and so on. And we're just about to hear from Cathy Moore, director of the Cambridge Literary Festival, now face to face again. And a little bit like uh, the joy that we get from a physical book, there is kind of nothing to replace the physical interaction, actually seeing an author, hearing them talk, going around a bookshop as well, if you like, even though uh, bookshops are quite limited when you compare them to the number of books on display in Amazon. But that being there is something that we can't replace with the online experience. I think that's right. And I think that's why the bricks and mortar bookstores do still have a very important role in our lives. Many people, just as they value the printed book, value the experience of browsing in a physical bookstore. The last couple of decades have been difficult times for bricks and mortar bookstores, but they still do have a very important role to play as spaces in which people can browse and discover books that they had not already known about or planned to buy. That browsing experience, it can happen really only in a physical bookstore. Those bookstores that have really worked hard at integrating themselves into the communities of which they are part, and also putting on events for readers to listen to authors, those kinds of events that happen only in the physical space of a bookstore are immensely important. Thank you, John. Well, let's hear from Cathy then. Uh, the Cambridge Literary Festival is an established part of the cultural fabric of this city. There are two festivals each year, one in the spring and one in the winter, along with various one-off events and masterclasses. During the pandemic, the festival continued online, but this year has seen a return to face-to-face -face events, and the Winter Festival is almost upon us, running from the 17th to the 20th of November at various venues around Cambridge. Bearing in mind the subjects of this programme, when I met Cathy Moore, I asked her rhetorically whether she still thought there was a place for literary festivals. What do you think, Lee? 
<laughs> Absolutely. And I think having been through the pandemic, then I think that even more so now. I mean, we got through the pandemic with online events. 12 to 18 months in, there was a definite tail off in enthusiasm. And we were greeted with open arms by our public when we went back in real life, IRL, last April. People could not have been more excited. Even the ones who were not very nice before were, were so grateful that we were back. <laughs> what is it then, do you think, about actually being in person? Because you, as you say, you're doing online events and the authors were talking and people could watch that. What is it about actually having people in the same room? I'm going to break into a Barbara Streisand song go now. On, go for it. People, people <laughs> who need people <laughs> are the luckiest yeah, that's people. Enough, yeah. That's enough, that's enough, OK. I just think people like, and especially after two years of, of not being able to see people, they like to be back. And, you know, they like seeing the authors in the flesh. They like having their books signed. They like being able to ask a question. They just And they just like the general hubbub I think of the festival you know dashing between events signing cues talking to people in the bar about what they've just seen and what they're going on to see and making new friends in the audience and you've been doing this now how many years (laughs) far too many um (laughs) 19 so we celebrate 20 years next year so 19 years so you were doing this all throughout the time where people were saying look the book is dead the physical book is dead it's all online now I guess we were but I, I think we can all agree that the book really isn't dead there are different formats but there is nothing quite like a beautifully produced book and I think publishers are clever the book industry has made a really great response to Kindles and the like and the the notion that the book is dead because there are so many more beautiful editions of classic books now as a response to that and it's thriving. And have you found the publishing industry, the promotion, marketing of the publishing industry changing in the years you've done it? Because authors used to go on tours didn't they? And and they, it seems that there were quite large marketing budgets. So have you found how you've interacted with publishers changed over the years? I'm thinking the answer should probably be yes, but actually I haven't found it hugely different. As an organisation, we were one of about 66 festivals nationally when we began, and we're now one of round about 400. So the thing that's changed is there is more competition for big selling authors which every festival wants in order to to cover their bottom line but other than that no and you've got some big names uh, in this upcoming festival haven't you tell us about them yeah it's been a good year the winter festival is traditionally you know november october is when all of the big books for christmas come out so all the big big celebrities are published then and we've we've managed to grab a few which is really really lovely and people like hugh bonneville nadia hussein jarvis cocker brenda hale george monbiot Ruth Jones. People love seeing a great author and uh, it's always a bit of a buzz when one of those is a celebrity as well. Yeah, I mean, I think people just like to see their heroes, people they've seen on the TV and they love to be in the same room as them. Simple as that, I think. So you mentioned a few names there. Who else have you got coming? Well, we did have Jeremy Hunt coming, but given his now elevated position to Chancellor, he's, he's not able to join us. Well, it's uh, his loss. His loss, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we've got some crackers. I mean, Jer- Jeremy Bowen, who's reporting overseas, has been, you know, astonishing foreign correspondent. Kate Moss joins us. Adrian Childs, who's talking about something, actually, which I think most people would like to watch. Is Adrian Childs talking about the uh, moderate drinking? Actually, he was functioning alcoholic and has really turned around the way he his relationship with alcohol and really looking forward to seeing what he's got to say um, abby morgan tv producer of the split suffragette jeffrey Boki talking about racism in education reno edo lodge talking about her 
Why Are We No Longer Talking to White People About Race? David Dimbleby, who's just retired, I think, from the BBC with his memoir of all of the astonishing things he's done. And Esme Young from The Sewing Bee. Esme. Mm, <laughs> lovely Esme. So there's a lot of kind of memoir there, experience books, if you like. Yeah, like life story books. And equally, I mean, Ian McEwan has written an incredible novel, actually, which is the arc of a man's life to fit the arc of his life, really. So, I mean, I think, although it's not autobiographical, I think there are certainly elements. It's kind of covering all of the political and social backdrops that his life would have covered. And it, it's, it's a wonderful read. I read it over the summer. Really, real, real pleasure. And has it got easier to do the programming for this after so long? Oh, I'd like to say yes. <laughs> um, more publishers are wanting to get their authors to Cambridge because we've developed a reputation for delivering good audiences, engaged audiences, and we look after our authors. We've got a good reputation for author care. Uh, but it is difficult to grab the big names that you want to fill the seats. And there is a buzz around town, isn't there, while this is on? I mean, that's particularly around Market Passage and the Old Divinity School and the Union and all around there. There's all those yellow banners flying. It's a yeah. great place. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's, you know, and yeah, as long as it's not raining here. <laughs> um, we, you know, we hope to create that again in November. And do you manage to enjoy it? I always enjoy it. I mean, I, you know, it is the pleasure, it is the highlight. It's exhausting, you know, run round a lot. But yeah, I do. It's, it's fabulous to see what you've worked so hard on for best part of a year, really. And as well as actual talks and interviews, you've got a literary lunch as well. Yeah, we have. We've got a um, partnership with the University Arms Hotel and we've got five events there. A breakfast with the editors, a literary lunch, Jill Dawson and Sarah Vaughan, both relatively local authors, we will be chatting to Alex Clark over a two-course lunch, an afternoon tea with Cambridge-based Joe Browning-Rowe and Francis Spufford, also talking to Alex Clark. And we're having our first literary soiree in the evening with Kate Moss, Abby Morgan and Sarah Churchwell. And that promises to be a hoot, I think. And the Cambridge Literary Festival runs from the 17th to the 20th of November. You can find out more about upcoming events and book tickets at the website cambridgeliteraryfestival.com. We've been talking on Bookmark today to John Thompson about his book, Book Wars, The Digital Revolution in Publishing, published by Polity Press. John, a big question now. Uh, we've been talking about the past. What about the future? Where do you see publishing going in maybe the next five or ten years? Is it static or will there be changes? There will be changes, of course. This whole space of what the publishing world is, is itself changing. The boundaries are being stretched and moved all the time by new developments that occur on the margins of the field. I don't generally engage in trying to predict the future. It's impossible to know. But if we reflect on what's actually happened over the last couple of decades, I think we can see that there are certain trends that will continue. We're likely to see, for example, a mixed economy of print and digital. That is, we're not going to see a one-way shift from print to digital as many people once expected. Instead, what we'll see is a hybrid economy where print and digital exist side by side. Ebooks are, I think, best regarded as just another format in which books can be delivered to readers. No different in this respect than uh, the paperback. 
which was also a radical innovation when Adam Lane launched Penguins in the 1930s. Ebooks are not going to replace print books, at least not anytime soon. I think another development we're going to see is a continued growth of self-publishing. This explosion of self-publishing is a really significant development, which has its own complex players and rules and practices and so on and so forth, in which many people have built their careers and will continue to do so. What's important about this self-publishing is not just that it provides a whole series of pathways for authors to publish their work and readers to acquire new work, but it also disrupts the traditional power structures of the publishing industry as we've come to know it. The publishers and agents who were and still are the gatekeepers of the traditional publishing world are now being bypassed. And we will see this process continue to develop in the future and to assume new and unexpected forms that we might not even be able to anticipate. Thank you, John. And a question we ask all our guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment? Well, I've always been a great fan of John le Carre. And so when I have a chance, I work my way through another another one of his uh, novels uh, as I work my way through his corpus in general. At the moment, I'm reading A Perfect Spy, which is one of his great works. Thank you, John. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment uh, for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show, we're featuring novels that defy genres. So our featured guest is Ian Hood talking about his novel, Every Trick in the Book. We'll hear from Sophie White on her novel, Where I End, and Guy Ware will be chatting about his novel, The Peckham Experiment. But we'll sign out now, John, with your last choice of music, which is Debe by Alafar Ketore and Tumani Chabata. Why this one? I listen to a lot of music from different parts of the world, from Brazil, Cuba, from different parts of Africa. And I've chosen as my final piece of music this beautiful song by two brilliant musicians from Mali, Ali Fakature and Tumani Jabata. Ali Fakature plays the guitar and Tumani Jabati plays the traditional kora from Mali. And the song is the first track from their wonderful album, In the Heart of the Moon. Radio.